The title of our sermon this Lord's Day is Our Refuge. In today's message, I intend to take us into the Bible. Of course, that's what we do every Sunday. We're a Bible uh, teaching and preaching church, and we make no apologies about that. So I'm going to be taking us into the Bible. So you need to have a Bible, pull one up on your phone or whatever, or grab one in the entryway. We are going to be digging deep into the Word of God this morning, as we do on any given Sunday. And I'm going to be giving special attention to the book of Psalms, And and towards the end of the message, I'll be giving attention to the book of Proverbs. These books are found in the wisdom section of the Hebrew Bible, the first testament of our sacred canon. That said, would you open your Bible and find your way to the book of Psalms? And as you are turning to the book of Psalms, I'm going to give you some context. The English word psalm comes from the Greek word psalmos, which is a word that simply means something along the lines of song sung with musical accompaniment. Uh, Song sung with musical musical accompaniment, psalmos. That's how we get psalms. So this book was intended uh, to be used uh, as a part of of singing in corporate worship. It it, it was an ancient hymnal. For those of you who grew up in the church and you had the the hymnals and the pews, it's it's an ancient songbook. For those of you who are younger, you might think of the book of Psalms as as sort of an iTunes or Spotify list of kind of the greatest hits of ancient Israel's uh, songs of worship. Music has a way of getting deep into the soul. Intuitively, you, you know the power of song. You, you know the power of music. You know how uh, music and song can get deep into our minds and deep into our souls. In fact, music and song provides therapy uh, when you're using the right kind of music, of course. It, it provides therapy for our lives in a broken world. So that brings me to the first point on our outline, Psalms for the Soul. It is worth noting that the Hebrew title for this book that we call Psalms from Psalmos was known as Tehillim. Tehillim literally means songs of praise. So this is a praise book. These are offered to give praise to God. These are are songs just not for sake of singing, but for offering to God in praise. These are, are songs that are inspired by the Holy Spirit of the living God to spur us on in trust of God through the gamut of human experiences as they teach us about God and his ways through the way of human song. Now, the ancient way of singing is different than our modern way of singing. For one, our songs and our poetry are often based on rhyme and meter, but the Hebrews use different literary devices for their poetry. Most predominantly, they use parallelism, where you take ideas and you, you compare and you contrast them, and then, and then you add that to ancient forms of music. In today's study, we are going to be in Psalm Uh, 62 to to begin, and so turn to Psalm 62. And as we get into the text of Psalm 62, I will highlight some parallels as we get into it, and and we'll read exhortations as we get into it to the people of God that that is stirring them in praise to offer to God. They're not just singing for song's sake, they're singing for worship, for, 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 for His name's sake. The exhortations in Psalm 62 will show us the aforementioned parallelism, and, and, and those parallels will, will surface certain exhortations that are, are moving in with human experience. We are a, a group that are here today to learn from this ancient group and their ancient hymn book. And together, this ancient group, the people of Israel, and their hymnal has in Christ become our hymnal, for we are a part of the people of God by the work of Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the nations. Uh, fun, foundationally, we, we are coming, though, not just to read an ancient hymn book that was written by mortals. 
we have come to worship the Ancient of Days, the Eternal Lord God, who reveals himself in these psalms through various powerful pictures for his people. That brings us to the next point. Psalms are for the soul. Psalms provide pictures for the saints. I'm going to focus on the picture of refuge this morning, hence the sermon title, Refuge, along with the picture or, or the image of refuge is the related picture of rock. So rock and refuge are two pictures that we'll see in the text. And let me say something about these by way of introduction. In the Psalms and elsewhere in Scripture, God is pictured as a refuge and a rock for his people. Uh, getting, uh, before we get into the text, it is important that we understand these metaphoric pictures so that as we're reading it in the text, we kind of have an understanding to, to, to these, these images or these common colloquial expressions from the ancient world. In our world, I don't know, if I, I read about a rock or something, I'm liable to think about the wrestler turned Hollywood star, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. In any case, in the biblical world, the image of a rock wasn't a, a Hollywood guy, but the image of rock pr provided a kind of metaphor for a solid foundation. It provided a metaphor for protection and security. Additionally, in the geography of the Bible, massive rocks were used for building fortresses, and in the desert, they were, they were the sorts of things to provide shade as, as well uh, from the hot sun. As well, they would provide places where water would flow. So, so if you found, your, found yourself in, in the heat and, and, and you found yourself dehydrated, you would look for a rock where you could find shelter from the weather and you could hopefully provide, uh, uh, find some water for your body. With this in mind, when we read biblical expl uh, exclamations about God being a rock or proclaiming a, a rock, you, you think of that. You, you're finding shelter, you're, you're finding water, you're, you're finding protection. Psalm 89, verse 26, and let me put it in front of you. We, we read, he will cry to me, you are a father, you are the rock of my salvation. You, you, are, you are my God, you're the rock of my salvation. So rock is a picture then of, of, of power, of protection, of provision. A rock is a, a pillar that gives support to, uh, to, to, to one. It holds you up, it, it shields you, it strengthens you, it secures you, it stills you, it makes you feel safe. Now the image of a refuge is related to the image of a rock. After all, many refuges are, are made of rock uh, or, or stand on a rock or surrounded by rock. What is a refuge? A refuge is a safe place. It is a harbor, it's a haven, it's a, it's a, it's a location where you cannot be touched or harmed. It's a tower, it's a fortress, it's a, it's a high place away from danger. Now, without getting into it too much, in, in these ancient days, when these things were written, they also had places that were known as cities of refuge. There were six of them in total in the Hebrew Bible, and they served as places of asylum to provide safe shelter for people in different circumstances and hardships in this broken world. It was uh, sort of like the cities of refuge. It was sort of like an ancient version of our modern witness protection program. Sort of like a relocation program to, to keep people safe, the cities of refuge. Uh, and in cases, for example, we read in the Law of Moses, if, if someone accidentally killed someone, and it was an accident, so they wouldn't go to death row and, 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 and face capital punishment, it was an accident, uh, they would be relocated to a city of refuge, and, and that would provide them certain protection, specifically a blood avengers who would come and, and seek to, to bring vengeance upon the person for what was an accident. In some, a city of refuge is, is a place to keep you from a blood avenging, Places of, of refuge are, 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 are to shelter you from, from enemies. 
It's where you're safe. You have a safe place if you're in a place of refuge. As a kid, maybe you, you played uh, the game Tag. Uh, you know, it's a very common game in our culture. There's variations of the game. We have Freeze Tag and Duck, Duck, Goose, uh, etc. In one variation of the game that we played it as a kid, Tag, you, we had a safe zone. And so if you're in this circle or you're on this structure of the playground or whatever, you can't be tagged there. You're, you're safe. You can't tag me. I'm safe here. I'm safe. You can't put me out of the game. I'm in the safe zone. You can't touch me. That's what a refuge is. It's a safe zone. This would be a modern kind of kid's refuge uh, to illustrate so that we're wrapping ourselves around these images. Now, 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 in the ancient world, of course, refuges were not child's play. They are often associated with war. During times of, of, of war, battling armies will often agree to terms of war. To have, in those terms of war, they'll have neutral zones, protected areas, uh, uh, places where those who are not involved in the conflict can flee for refuge. Uh, I, I think of the 1949 Geneva Convention as a modern example of this, where, where you lay out the terms of where the hospitals are going to be and where the weak and the wounded and the sick and, and children and, and women and, and, and elders, and, you know, they can go and, and, and these fueling armies say, we're not going to touch that place. That place is a refuge. With the illustration of war and refuge, we have a modern parallel that helps us understand the ancient world because the people of the Bible were no strangers to war. They lived through, you know, what were the world wars of their times. They're in constant war with tribes and, and, and nations, and it, it was a time of great conflict. So with this in mind, when we read and study this morning about God is our refuge, you need to have in mind war, conflict, fear, death, blood. It's a, it's a heavy term, refuge. We, we read in Psalm 59, verse 16, that I will sing of your strength, for you are my stronghold, a refuge in my day of distress. Refuge, distress. Think about that. Uh, there, there are lots of, of, of songs about God being a refuge, but I really want you, when you're reading this, or we're singing songs about him being our refuge, to have distress, horror, conflict, war, all of that in mind as you read. Now, so, so keep that in mind. Psalms, the people of Israel, they are a people that were no strangers to conflict. They're surrounded by people who want them dead. We just don't relate to that. You know, I'm not afraid of Canada at all. I'm not worried about them coming down here. I'm not worried about it. You, no one has ever been like, oh, you know, Canada, you know, they're going to get us and pour maple syrup over us. Like, we're not afraid of them at all. I'm not afraid of Mexico. I'm not afraid of Canada. We don't live in fear of, like, countries coming, coming in. You know, there's rumblings of it. You see world powers doing goofball stuff, and you kind of go, mm, you know, but, I, you know, it's not, like, it's not real to me. This is a, a hymn book, a song book, that's written by people who, who live in constant fear that they're not going to make it. The times of distress, Psalm 59, 16 in front of us. The, the times of distress are not losing a boyfriend or a girlfriend or struggling with a mean co-worker or dealing with a Karen next door. The distress is life and death. It's not a by Felicia thing. It's, it's, not, it's, it's a fight for life. So, so be mindful of this. I'm, I'm laboring by way of introduction so that I can give us this, this context so that as we're reading the text, it, it really hits. Rock refuge are for people in, in, 
in perilous times who are dealing with death. So we see them together in the scripture and they're often situated in the voice of one who is desperate, who, who is staring down death and, and is scared and is worried. Psalm 61, let me put this in front of you because it has the images of rock and refuge together. Hear my cry, O God, give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is fate. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. The place where I can't be touched. For you have been a refuge to me, a, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let me dwell up there in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Carry me there. Get me there. Get me out of here. I am scared to death. Now see the language of enemies. See the desperation of the psalmist. Life and death, war. The imagery is very helpful for us as well. Theologically, to give us some theological context, again, kind of the historical, cultural context or whatever here, a theological context for us as we reflect on the Psalms, as we look back through the history of Israel's Messiah, who we've come to worship today, our Savior, the historic Jesus of Nazareth, and we've come to hear his good news, the gospel proclaimed, and we've come to carry that good news into the world and through that good news, he continues to save a, a people for himself. As, as we theologically look at the text and, and we think about being rescued from, from death, we think about our Savior who, who, who saves us from the penalty and power of sin and death. He is our rescue. He is our, our refuge. Salvation is saving. Salvation is God saving, specifically his people. Saving us from what? Saving us from who? Saving us from death and saving us from the penalty of death, which includes an afterlife of punishment. Saving us from who? From God. We're his enemies. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Read it. It describes humanity, and I quote, as enemies of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 likewise describes fallen humanity as, as quote, enemies of God. In fact, it goes on, 1 Corinthians 15, it goes on in the next verse, in verse 26, to describe death itself as an enemy of God. And there's the important correlation. 10 out of 10 people die because 10 out of 10 people sin. Sin and death go together. How do they go together? Well, sin is a rebelling against the Creator. The Creator is the giver of life. You rebel against the one who gave you life. The punishment that fits that crime is the taking back of life, death. Oh, but death, you can't escape from the Creator. You, you, you can't live a wicked life and, and snuff yourself like, say, Hitler did and think that you uh, aren't going to have any consequences. No, he, he is Lord over life and the grave. And this Lord eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. He is the Creator, and He is a gracious Creator because He saw fit to respond to the rebellion of humanity by stepping into the mess of humanity Himself and, and stepping into it in this specific way. The Father sent the Son who became a human. He's fully God and fully man. That historic Jesus of Nazareth, that man is the eternal Son in the flesh. And He has stepped into human history in the flesh in order to rescue us from this mess of sin and death. And this is why there's a big old cross hanging on the wall behind me, commemorating the one who died on the cross, the one who gave himself in death in order that we might have life. He has come to rescue a people for himself. And many of you have been claimed by him. You've been rescued of the penalty of your, of your sin. 
And though we face death in this life, we have one who is victorious over the grave because the cross is empty, the tomb is empty. He is risen indeed from the dead and he has paid the penalty for us and his resurrection shows this. And so he rescues us and he brings us to the place of refuge. So as we theologically read of of death and fear of death, we theologically muse around the gospel and the bad news of sin and death and around the refuge that we have in Christ who has rescued us from this. It takes two parties to have a feud, right? It takes two parties to have a feud. I suppose you can fight with yourself, but you get what I'm saying. It takes two parties to have a feud. And it takes two parties to bring it back together again. It takes one to ask forgiveness. It takes one to give forgiveness. And it takes the two to reconcile. And in Christ, we have the God-man who has come to reconcile both parties, God and man, unto himself, and to provide that reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, uh, friends, we need reconciliation. We need a savior. We need refuge. And so as we read the psalmist crying out for liberation from war, we are reminded of the ultimate battle that rages in the earth, The ultimate battle raging in the earth is not in Ukraine or wherever. It is in fallen human hearts, and it is rippling out into human societies, ruining relationships, families, cultures, states, nations, the world. Sin isn't just within, it's without, it's individual, it's it's corporate, and so we all desperately need a Savior who will rescue us. We need a Savior who will give us new hearts from this problem within We need a savior who can bring reconciliation to societies as they're crumbling into dysfunction and and, and falling deeper and deeper into darkness. We need a savior who conquers disease and death because our bodies are dying. We need a savior. And that brings us to the next point on the outline. We see psalms for the soul, pictures for saints, rock refuge, thirdly, pressing into the savior. We need one who will overcome the enemy of death, who will overcome the war that is raging in human hearts. We need one who will overcome the withering away of our bodies. Behold, he has come to bring peace to us, to end the war, to take enemy rebels and to make them into sons. He has come, he has arrived, and will you come to him? Will you come to him? Will you press into him? Behold the son who has come into the world to call a people to himself. Hear his call. And mind you, this call did not happen in a vacuum. It happened in human history. And this ancient text that you have opened to you, I'm trying to situate that history among his people and give you corroboration of the things that I'm detailing for you. And speaking of details, the author of this text is a part of this history. The author of this text, Psalm 62, you have it in front of you. If you look at the the preface at, at the top of it, you read a Psalm of David. You see that? David is a part of the history and the details. This is significant because for the people of Israel, they were given promises, covenants from God. And God promised to the father of their nation, the people of Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob, Jacob, that they would become this nation. And he promised that he would bring them to this place. And through this place, he would be restoring the earth. And he promised to this historic figure, David, who was the king of the people, a broken and fallen king, that he would bring a king who wouldn't be fallen, who wouldn't be broken, who would be whole, who would be holy, who would be righteous, and whose reign would never end. In Christ, we have that promise fulfilled. He is the Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one. It carries concepts of kingship with it. 
The prophets foresaw that a Messiah would come twice. First, to suffer as a servant, and later to conquer and have victory over sin and death. The Davidic language and imagery inside of the Hebrew Bible typologically points us to the Messiah who is fulfilled in Christ. So now you have Christ, the triune God, theological context, the cultural context, and, and these images of, of refuge and, and rock. You've got the historical backdrop. You've got David, who's no stranger, nor Israel, to being surrounded by enemies who want to kill him. In Psalm 62, David is surrounded by enemies, and they were treating him as if he were about to fall over. You're going to see language of, of leaning, an image of kind of a tottering wall, and, 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 and they are doing everything, his enemies, to push that wall over. Like Humpty Dumpty, they, they want to see a fall. They want to see David crushed. They want to see him unable to be put back together again. The enemy is closing in for victory. The enemy is coming for blood. David is as good as dead. The person speaking in the psalm is described by one scholar, Dr. Marvin Tate, as, and I quote, an endangered person under attack by those who are seeking his ruin. In the face of danger, the one who, who's about to be rocked, he turns to God as his rock. And he, and he, and he writes this song, and, and, and he's going to sing this song in the face of death, and he gives this song to God's people to give us something to sing in the face of death. In spite of his enemies, in spite of their hostility in this psalm, David is not worrying about them, but rather he is trusting God as his refuge. That's the context. Further, it is worth cross-referencing this psalm that is in front of us with Psalm 39. Uh, why? Because if you look at the top here of Psalm 62, you have it open there. It's a psalm of David. And notice what you see there in the notes, right? It also speaks about a choir director, Jeduthun. Well, Psalm 39, if you're taking notes, write it down. This is a, a, a psalm to reference because you also have Jeduthin mentioned there. He's listed in 1 Chronicles 16.41, note takers, as one of David's chief musicians. So, so, so he has the task of taking these lyrics and, and, and making the instrumentation and the music for it. Uh, Jeduthin has to play uh, Dr. Dre and make a beat for these bars, if you will. He's got to compose a theme song that's more epic than John Williams' work for Star Wars in the 1970s. Together with David, Jeduthin is going to bring in the music and they're going to offer this song for the people in, for a day of darkness. There's hardship. There's hardship that has come. And so he writes a song. And Jeduthin writes music for it. Now, hardship is significant because it is the perfect environment for trust to be exhibited. Anyone can trust God when you're happy and healthy. Anyone can trust when you are in control and everything is going your way. But only the faithful, only the truly devoted people of God can trust when the going gets tough. And this can only come, of course, not because you're tough. It can only come by grace. Now, that said, this week... Uh, some members of our church faced uh, a tough time uh, that doesn't do justice to it. It was a nightmare. It is a nightmare. It's a horrible tragedy, which God in his grace has been sustaining them through perhaps what is the darkest hour they may ever face in their life. This is why the subtitle of today's message at the top is a timely study in the Psalms and the Proverbs. And I'll, I'll talk about later in the sermon... Uh, what this tough season is, because we want to make sure this morning that the whole church body knows God has not called us to suffer in silence. 
God has called us to bear one another's burdens. God has called us to mourn together as Christ's body. Describing the church as a body reminds us that we are connected, and when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. Indeed, a part of our body has suffered a tremendous blow this week, and some, some of you in the body already know, and you can see why pastorally I am leading us in this section of Scripture this morning. Again, I'll say more about it later. In fact, I'll, I'll say what it is specifically. I want you this morning, however, to know that as we are talking about trusting God, this is not theory for us. It is real. The rubber has met the proverbial road, and we are holding fast to faith. We are heavy in mourning. We are mourning because of suffering. This tremendous blow, this nightmare, uh, it involves a tragic death, an unexpected death for a beloved family in our church. And so the rubber and the road have come together, and death has come upon us. There is a dark and menacing shadow that hangs over the home of a family we love. There is pain, there is shock. It reminds me of Job and forces of darkness that sought to shatter his faith and trust in God. It got really real this week, church. It got really real. But let me say this, that Christ, oh, he's already really real. He's sustaining us. He's the real deal. He is the anchor in these stormy seas. He is the lighthouse who brings us to shore safely. And so before we get to the horror of the present, I need to present the glory of Christ to his people in Scripture. And I pray that as we hear of him, we will hear him directly speaking through his word to his church. And I pray that you will hear him calling, calling, all who are weary, come and find rest for your souls. And so our souls wait on him. And that's where the text begins. You got the context. Let's jump in. My soul, verse 1, waits. How does the soul wait? In silence for God only. Let's hang on that. If you've lived long enough, you know what it is like to wonder where God is. You've felt the feeling of waiting, not just waiting. You felt the feeling of wondering while you're waiting. Even as a believer, no doubt you have experienced doubt. Not per se that God is real or that God is good or that God is triune, as I've declared to you, or that Jesus rose from the dead, as I proclaimed to you. But like his disciples on the mountain with a great commission, there was worry mixed in with their worship in Matthew 28. And we feel that. We go through worry and worship. If you've been a believer some, for some amount of time, you've likely wondered in the midst of loss and tragedy, where are you, God? Where are you, God? Or am I alone up here? Have you you've felt that? Where, where are you, God? Do you know what it's like to be trapped in a headlock of pain and suffering? Do you know what it is like to do battle with the darkness and feel the weight crushing you? Well, that's the background of the Psalms. That's why we're in the Psalms. Enemies, life, death, despair, doubt, more. My soul waits, look at the text, in silence for God only, for in him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. Now the psalmist views his physical crisis of impending death from violent enemies. He ties it together with his soul. There's something intensely internal, mental, emotional. The feeling that you are waiting for God to move in the midst of something hard not seeing it quite yet, and so you're waiting. The soul is waiting. Since it is a popular English translation, I need to note that if you have the NIV translation, 
I hope you'll ditch it and get the NAS, but it, it says, my soul finds rest here. Uh, th there's a slight difference between waiting and resting, and, and the NIV here misses the original language. The word is, is actually uh, not here in the Hebrew. It's implied by other words in the verse. By verse 4, this word daman, which is, which is wait. Now, wait, uh, for us to understand this, it, it doesn't necessarily mean you're at rest. You can be worrying while you're waiting. You could be going through the gamut of human emotions. But waiting is just the opposite of presuming. It's the opposite of the fool who rushes in and makes a mess. It is the opposite of trying to figure everything out. Instead, it is giving everything to the Father above, and you just wait. The psalmist begins by uh, talking about waiting on the Lord and trusting in the Father God. Uh, the way that the Hebrew is worded, the emphasis is not so much on the waiting per se, but on the object of the waiting God. He alone is my rock. As I've covered by way of introduction, the rock is a picture of strength and protection and all of these things. Biblical scholar Dr. John Kisselman has noted, unlike most psalms, which use a variety of imagery to depict God, the psalm is thematically unified through the image of God's strength and power. Also, as I covered in the importance of, of theologically situating the text, we want to have Christ in mind, who is our refuge, and, and Christ, incidentally, inside of Scripture, is described as our rock. Christ is our rock. He is the rock of our salvation. He is our stronghold. The Hebrew poetry wonderfully shows the stronghold that God is for his people in this chapter. Remember, I mentioned that uh, Hebrew poetry isn't quite like ours, but it does paralleling. And so let me give you some notes here to jot down. There's a parallel with verses 1 and 2, with 5 and 6, with verses 3 and 4, with 9 and 10. And you'll see that as we move. With that parallel, God is the object of our, of our faith and our trust begins to surface in this wonderful song that David has written. We trust God because he is our rock. What, meanwhile, humans fail us. They are, they are not rocks. So we don't put our trust in men. Specifically, the humans, uh, in the text again, these are the enemies that are coming against him. Uh, and speaking of enemies and, and thinking of Christ, our rock, we need to be reminded that apart from God's grace, we too would be on the opposite side of the psalm. We would be enemies of God. Read about these enemies. Continue reading. Uh, they're assailing him. Look at verse 3. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you? Now, it's important to note here that from verse 2 and verse 3, he has shifted who he's talking to. He began by talking to God, and now in verse 3, he starts to talk to his enemies. Uh, the NAS has the title here, God Alone, a Refuge from Treachery and Oppression. So he is talking to his oppressors. The TEV translation words it, How much longer will you attack a man? How long? How long? He's, he's taunting his enemies. Noted Hebrew Bible scholar Dr. Van Gemmeren calls this question, and I quote, an indignant challenge to the ungodly. Uh, the godly challenging the ungodly. This, this song is a praise to God. It's also a taunt in the face of death. And so the psalmist challenges death. He challenges his opponents. He challenges those who are mocking his trust in God and his way of life. The opponents who present a physical threat to him, he sings that he stands in God. He, he, he sings by, 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 by way of the Spirit who is holding him up, by way of the Spirit who has inspired these words for us when we face dark hours when death is knocking on our door or when death has sucker-punched us and we didn't see it coming. He sings in the face of it. How long, verse 3, will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? 
They've counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They will bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. Selah. The enemies are portrayed as false friends who delight in falsehood. Their purpose is destructive. Their fuel is darkness. The psalmist explains his experience as a wall that's being pushed and it's tottering and it's going to fall at any moment, but he doesn't fret his foes. Instead, he hollers at the haters, you are condemned in your sin. David should be the least of their concerns. Israel should be the least of their worries. They, the enemies of God and his people, are dead in their sin because they have rebelled against the Creator and they will face death in an afterlife of punishment. They will experience the collapsing of a wall of destruction. He continues, verse 5, My soul waits. I wait in silence for, the, for, for God only, for my hope is in Him. He, is, uh, he only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. This is the second time that he said it. I, I'm, I'm not going to be shaken. And, and the second time that he mentions waiting. I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting. I'm still standing and I'm still waiting. We tend not to think of waiting as a good thing. I, I don't know about you, but it, you know, if anyone's like, would you like to wait? No, I don't want to wait. I hate waiting in lines. Uh, I, hate, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. That's why I you know, go to Disneyland on a Saturday. No. Go to Disneyland in summer. No. I don't want to wait in lines. Are you kidding me? The psalmist finds strength, though, while he is waiting. And here's why he finds strength, because at the end of this line, there is none other than God. I'll wait in that line. I'll wait in that line. I won't be shaken in that line. The King James translates it, I shall not be moved. You're not going to push me around. You won't defeat me. You will not win. I won't be budged. I'll stand my ground as I stand in this line and I wait. Now, how will you stand? Because God is your stronghold. The stronghold, the, the, the stronghold that's secure, again, high place, fortress, you're safe there, you can't be shaken there. The, the, the fortress is on the high ground, the enemies can't get there. And he speaks of this happening within his soul. And so what's happening within his, his soul is something stirring, it's overlapping with something physical as enemies are coming. It's overlapping with geography where he's located as they're coming after him. And, and, and here he, he has this thing stirring within his soul, this trust, this faith. Uh, faith is described theologically as alien. Faith is described theologically as foreign. It isn't something that we're mustering up within ourselves. It's something that God takes and he places in your chest Deep in your soul, it surpasses all understanding. It draws you to God in the face of a circumstance that would kill you, that would crush you, that would end you. It draws you to a place of trust. David has not dumped his trust. God has been merciful. He has placed an alien and foreign trust within him that is welling up, verse 7, and he's crying out, God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. God, my salvation and my glory rest. Salvation. Again, salvation is deliverance. Now, salvation in, in terms of Scripture, it can mean spiritual deliverance. It can also mean physical deliverance. Like in many cases where there's an enemy that's, that's right there and you say, I save me, you're talking about being saved from some physical enemy. Now, that said, inside of Scripture, the physical and the spiritual often overlap. In our modern culture, we tend to compartmentalize them. And we talk about, you know, the spiritual over here or the physical over here. No, 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 they overlap. You'd be saved from these physical enemies and you'd be saved from the enemy of sin and death and your saving of that, it rests totally in God. 
And so the psalmist is glorying in him. He's giving honor to him. He's saying, all of this depends on God. I can't do it. He's the one who will do it. He is my refuge. I'll put some cross-references in front of you that you can jot down. Psalm 1830. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You're invited to taste it. Come and see this good refuge that he is. Psalm 511, we read, But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let him ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them that those who love your name may exult in you. It is worth highlighting here with Psalm 511 in front of you. The the psalmist is specific about God. Notice he's not talking about any old generic God, but he's talking about the God of Israel. He says the only God who is, and then he specifies the Hashem, the name of God. Names reveal a specific identity of, of one. And the one God has revealed his name, Hashem, to his people of Israel, Yahweh, and he has revealed himself as well to his church in Christ, who through trust and, and faith we have salvation. We read in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other Hashem name under heaven that has been given to mankind by which we must be saved. I would be remiss not to point him to you as we're studying the Psalms, for the Psalms are all pointing to him. Indeed, the whole Bible is pointing to him. And more than pointing, the whole Bible is crying out to you, come to him, find safety in him. Find safety in the name of Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth, the eternal Son of God in flesh who died for you and who conquered death. Run to him, he is the refuge for your soul. There is not a person in here who does not need to do that There is not a person in here who can do it on their own strength. He will come and by his grace, confess your sin, listen to him, trust him. Now listen to him speak through his word. Verse 8, trust in him at all times, all times. Oh, people, pour out your heart before God. God is a refuge for us, Selah. Now the psalmist invites us to trust. He keeps doing that. Trust him, trust him, trust him, trust him. He's inviting you and, and you need this. I need this invitation. Sinners and saints alike, sinners need the invitation of forgiveness. They need to hear the gospel. That is the power of salvation. And and the saved sinners who are made saints, we need this invitation as well because we're prone to wander. The lost and the loved alike need to hear the call. Fallen humanity is angled for anxiety, disposed to despair. David is a shepherd. He's a shepherd before he was ever a king. And like a good shepherd, he calls out to the flock, come, come. Come, a shepherd provides a refuge for his sheep. Come, come to the true shepherd of our souls. More than an invitation to come. This is a command. In the Hebrew language, it's it's an imperative. To get technical in language terms, it's an imperative. It's a command. It's more than a call. It's more than an invitation. He's not saying, hey, you guys, uh, you had had a tough week. Um, if, If you want some refuge, feel free to join us. We have refuge over here. If you'd like to come, you know, there's a place for you. You going, you want to come? You having a hard time? Okay, come over here. Feel free. Invitation. It's yours. Why don't you come? Come. RSVP. Just come. We, you know, come. It's not an invitation. It's not a mere invitation. It's a get over here. It's a get over here. It's a, it's a command. Get over here. Trust him. I command you. An imperative. And with an imperative before us and a command to trust, we are reminded of this distinction of the law and the gospel. Because God's law is an imperative. It's a command. And a command is, is a call on, that is the prerogative of the creator to do, to, to, to obey him. And we are reminded in the imperative to trust of the times in which we have not trust. 
We're reminded that when we see commands in Scripture, there, there's not a person in the room who hasn't violated his commands. And if you fall short of one command, the Scripture tells us you fall short of them all. Now, the law of the Lord is good, but we are not, and that's what the law is revealing. And so it's revealing to us that we need a Savior, and it's revealing to us that we need to, this point on your outline, press into the Savior. He's telling me to do something that I haven't always done. I haven't always trusted him like that. And so I stand condemned. So I need forgiveness. So I need one who will be condemned for me and stand in my place and take that penalty for me. Oh, isn't that great that we have Jesus? Isn't it great that we have a Savior? Not just any old Savior, but the eternal Son in flesh. Not a third party, but God in the flesh. And in the flesh, he lived an innocent life. And in the flesh, he died a substitutionary death. And in the flesh, he rose up victorious over death. He is our refuge. Every command that you have violated and you stand condemned by, he took that on his back on the cross. And so the command of verse 8 condemns us. We don't trust. But behold, the faithful son of God who trusted the Father perfectly. I don't pour out my heart like this verse says, like I should. Behold the sacrifice who poured out his heart to the Father. You read the gospel accounts. You read places like John 17. You see how perfectly the Son poured out his heart to the Father. You see how perfectly he trusted the Father. Darkness of Gethsemane in the wilderness fighting the devil himself. You see his perfect trust. Hebrews, write it down. Chapter 6, verse 18. Our ancient Jewish brothers and sisters in that faith community of that great text of Hebrews, Hebrews 6, 18, said, Jesus is our refuge. It's our refuge. We need to pause on that as we're reading this text, and I need to draw you to that. That's my responsibility on any given Sunday, to, to uplift him to you. Speaking of pausing and reflecting, notice in verse 8 there is this word, selah. I'll put it in front of you on the PowerPoint so you can see, selah. What is, what is this? We've seen it twice. We see it here in verse 8 and in verse 4, selah is a musical notation that indicates a pause. Uh, it's a liturgical or musical pause, and the purpose of it, uh, as far as we could tell from, from scholarship and ancient sources, is so that you pause. Pause the track. Hold up. Pause the track. You ever listen to music, and you just, got, you just got to pause it for a second? You pause the track and think about what it is said. Uh, 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 the scholar Fawcett wrote that the Salah reminds us that the psalm requires a peaceful and meditative soul which can apprehend what the, the Holy Spirit propounds. So, so hold up, wait, hit pause, and think about what we've just read in these verses. Okay, I, I've been musing with you. I don't pour out my heart as I should. I need a Savior. I need pardon for my unbelief. I need him to forgive me for my fear. I need him to absolve my anxiety. I want to have boldness like David in the day of my tribulation. That said, there are times we're pausing, we're pausing, pausing, Psalm 62. There are times when it gets rather raw with God, even inside of the scripture. So let's just pause, let's pause, chapter 62, quickly turn to chapter 77. Let's go to chapter 77. Let's see a different sort of response in a day of despair. Psalms, Psalm 77, look at the text. My voice rises to God, the text says. My voice rises to God, I cry aloud. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out. Weariness, my soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, I'm disturbed. I sigh 
my spirit grows faint. You have held my eyelids open. I'm so troubled. I cannot speak. Well, that's, that's, that's pretty different than chapter 62, isn't it? Chapter 77, the psalmist here can't sleep. He's overwhelmed. He has insomnia. He has depression. His soul is crushed. His soul refuses to be comforted in his own words. He has no refuge. There's refusal, not refuge. This reads like a panic attack. He, he, he can't even speak. He's probably having short breaths. His thoughts have gone dark. He feels abandoned by God. Look at verse 7. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never be favorable to me again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? In his anger, has he withdrawn his compassion? And then I said in my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Are you kidding me? That's heresy. God is immutable. He doesn't change. What are, what, you know, what are you saying here? Well, he's speaking in his pain. He hasn't slept. You know what it's like when you don't sleep? Your mind starts to drift. You go dark in despair. You say things you don't mean. You think things that you don't want to think. Chapter 77, chapter 62. Chapter 62, we paused on a Selah because I want to reflect on this with, with you. I wanted to take you to chapter 77 because I want you to see another reaction to fear and turmoil. The reaction is the polar opposite, and both are in Scripture for us to see and ponder. Both the confidence of Psalm 62, the command to trust that we fall short of, but praise be to God that we have in Christ perfect trust in our place. But I also need you to see despair in Scripture. Uh, the book of Psalms gives you a wide range of human emotion and music to go with it. And together, these, these psalms then, uh, then take us to, to understand the dark night of the soul. Uh, this chapter in front of us is reminiscent in some ways of the modern con concept of the five stages of grief. There are four stages before the last stage of acceptance. They are denial, anger, bargaining. God, if you do this, then, uh, you know, if you do this, God, you start to bargain with God. Uh, after bargaining, there's the stage of depression. You go through these waves of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, before you come to a stage of acceptance. You've likely felt these emotions. You've, if you've experienced pain and unexpected loss, they mess with your mind. They can even twist your theology, as we see here in the seventh, seventh chapter. Is God not gracious? Is God changing on me? Is God not, you know... Now, there's a saying worth committing to memory... It will serve you well in the dark night of the soul should it come your way, and very likely it will. So commit it to memory. Never doubt in the darkness what God has revealed in the light. Because when the darkness comes, the mind wanders. You know God is unchanging. You know better. But a cloud that is thick brings confusion. And that confusion brings discomfort. And that confusion messes with your sleep. If you have suffered with sleep issues, it messes with your mind, it messes with your body. You literally feel, as he has described, stretched out in weariness. Now, all of that said, the story doesn't end here. He doesn't have to go through the stages of grief. What he does instead is he rehearses the truth of God's word and God's track record with his people. Look at verse 11. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. 
You are the God who works wonders. You have made known strength of his people. There we see the spirit of Psalm 62 welling up in him. As he continues to recite the moments of God's track record among his people, he gets his eyes off of himself, and he gets his eyes on the covenant, on the promise, on God, the God who's perfect, unchanging, and loving, and his generous track record with the children of Abraham by grace. And so let's settle the Selah. We left off with this Selah at the end of verse 8. Let's go back to Psalm 62, where we left off in verse 9. Men of low degree are only vanity, and men of rank are a lie. In the balances, they go up. Do not trust in the opposition. He says, together they are lighter than breath. They're fleeting. Verse 10, do, do, do not vainly hope in robbery if riches increase. Do not set your art upon them. Hey, where is your heart? He wants, he wants to ask. Where is your heart? Craving earthly things obtained by sinful means and mortals or longing for the righteousness of the immortal God? Humans place their trust in, in wealth and human efforts, which is quite often gained by treachery, oppression, robbery, all sorts of social injustices and evil. Sadly, humans trust in these kind of things, and yet the people of God are called to trust in God. What has God said in his word? Look at verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. Power belongs to God. What does that mean? Once God has spoken, twice I have heard it. It's idiomatic. It means more than once I have heard. It indicates that this is something that God has plainly spoken. And you already know this. As I said a moment ago, never doubt in the darkness what God has revealed in the light. You know this already. So let me remind you of what you already know. Verse 12, loving kindness is yours, O Lord. The word for loving kindness is a Hebrew word, chesed. Chesed is a word that often gets translated as love. It's one of the most reoccurring terms in the Hebrew Bible to describe God's love. It's used over 250 times. It gets translated uh, sometimes not as love, but as mercy or kindness or goodness. Scholars try to explain chesed by using phrases like steadfast love or loyal love. It's a kind of a deep and undeserving favor that, that is given in fidelity by one to another who doesn't deserve it. In the 12th century, there was a medieval Jewish scholar, Maimonides, who explained chesed here in verse 12. Like this, let me put it in front of you. Chesed is the doing of good to the one who is not entitled to it from you at all. The doing of more good to one than that to which he is entitled. For which reason every good thing derived from the exalted one is designated chesed. We use the word grace in our vocabulary. right? Getting something that you didn't deserve, something that wasn't coming your way. And again, we read this theologically and we're reminded of salvation. We didn't deserve it. We rebel against the Creator. He should give us death. He should give us hell. But instead, chesed. He gives us life. Verse 12. Your chesed. It's yours, O God, for you recompense a man according to his work. So we have chesed, grace, juxtaposed with works. Law, gospel. Law presumes obedience. We haven't obeyed it, so we face judgment. Recall the images of cities of refuge, asylum from war, God making peace with us. We deserve to be judged according to our works, but instead we get chesed, and we get chesed in the sun. Speaking of the chesed of the sun, speaking of, of wrath or punishment for sin, speaking of refuge, there is a great messianic verse in the book of Psalms, in Psalm chapter 2, verse 12. Let me put it in front of you. It says, do homage or kiss the sun that he may not become angry, that you, that you uh, perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Who? The Son. Psalm 62, like Psalm 2, is a Psalm of David. 
David is tied to the promise of the Messiah. His seed would come. This is Messiah, David's seed. This is why the documents in the New Testament labor to tie and to prove Jesus' royal pedigree. He's the prophesied suffering servant. He is the son of the Hebrew Bible. He typologically fulfills Israel's history and faithfulness and atones for the sins of the people of Israel, the elect seed of Abraham, as well atones for those who are in Christ in his church. Psalm 2, human rebellion, juxtaposed with what? Submission to the son. The phrase kiss the son or, or do homage to the son, it conveys the imagery of a royal figure who is submitted to. Subjects would come to their king and they would kiss the ring as a sign of, of being in him. It reminds us of what Christ said in John 14, 6. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You must kiss the Son if you are to come to the Father. In John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 18, we see that those who do not kiss the Son or honor the Son, that is, those who do not believe in Him, they already stand condemned. Those who do not kiss the ring of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will stand by their own merit. They will, Psalm 62, verse 12, recompense according to their work. You can either have his work on your behalf or you can stand on your work and refuse to kiss the sun. Law, gospel, what will you receive? Will you stand in condemnation or will you be set free in him? Will you come to the one who has substituted himself for you? Will you receive his said? Oh, the grace that has been given to all who are thirsty, come and drink of the rivers of this living water. To all who are tired and weary, come and find rest to your souls. To all who are heavy and hurting and mourning, come to the one who will save you and carry you through the valley of darkness. Which brings me to the next point on the outline, pain and suffering. Okay, so I shared with you that we had horrible news of death that has come. I told you that dear members in our church faced a very tough time, which is a huge understatement. Uh, so that, 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 that said, I hope you can understand that before talking about pain and suffering, I had to talk about him. I had to talk about Jesus. I have to draw us to him. And as I share with you this horrible news, I would ask that you would be patient, that you would be patient as I, you know, try to hold it together up here. Almost every way of talking about this will be an understatement. I call it a nightmare that's probably the best word that I can use to describe what took place uh, for family in our church this week. A family in our church this week lost a child. This is every parent's nightmare. Sadly, it's not a dream that we can wake up from. It happened. I use the idiom in the introduction about the rubber meeting the road. We use this phrase when we talk about theory being tested and in terms of our faith Right? You, you feel it being tested in times like this. You feel the gamut of these psalms that I've, that I've put in front of us this morning. You, you, you feel that, I can't sleep. And then you also feel that, like, welling up in you trust. And let me say this. I watched my, my brother and sister process the loss of their child. And, it, and, it, and at every moment in it that I've sat with them multiple times this week, Psalm 62 just... I'm like, oh, my goodness, you guys are Psalm 62. Repeatedly as I, I sat with them in, 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 in shock and denial, just, both of them, mom and dad, just kept saying, I trust him. I trust him. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why this has happened, but I trust him. And both the mother and father were adamant that they wanted to be in the house of the Lord with his people in the midst of this pain. 
in a culture where many miss church for reasons that are foreign to Scripture and, frankly, sinful. They suffered such tremendous loss, and they refused to not be here today. I said, are you sure? You want, you know, no, no, no. We, we want to be in the house of the Lord today. We want to seek refuge in Him today. No doubt there will be nights where maybe Psalm 77 hits them, but I, I'll tell you this. All, all week I've just been hearing Psalm 62 from them. So, so let's, we're, we're pausing the sermon. I'm going to come back because we, after sharing the news, we need to process a little more. I just, you know, so I go long as it is, but this is just a heavy week. So uh, let me share specifics with you. Let me share specifics with you. So Jesus is with his church. We've begun by talking about him. We start with that, and now I'll share specifics with you. Before I share specifics with you, some pastoral, a couple of pastoral points really quick. Uh, and I can't help myself but to have an alliteration, so forgive me. The first point that I have for you is silence. Psalm 62 began, my soul waits in silence. I'm going to share with you specifics about who the family is. If you don't know, you need to know. But I need to share with you some, some pastoral stuff before I do. And the first is silence. Uh, and I, I, I don't try to fix this with words. You know, when people go through something heavy like this, you, you know, uh, we are, we're all processing, and people mean well and, and whatever, but uh, I've, I've had heavy blows hit me in terms of losses in the family and whatnot, and people mean well, but they'll, you know, I lost my dog, or and you're like, don't, just don't, don't, you know. Oh, and you start trying to compare it to something you went to, just, just don't. Silence. You don't, don't try to fix it. Don't try to, don't, don't, don't feel the pressure like you got to say or, you know, just silence is good. It's in the Bible, right? Right? I sit in silence. The second point that I have pastorally for us is space. This family needs space. They're in church today, but they need space. So I'm not going to pull them up here. I'm not, we're not, we're going to pray for them to be sure, but you know, they, they, they need space. And so you're, you're going to be made known who they are or whatever. But I, I need to silence. I need space. They're going to, need, they're going to need space. They need to know that you're here for them. But when you're processing it, it gets, it gets really hard. It gets really hard to have the conversation over and over and over. And so part of why I'm sharing this morning uh, pastorally is because it's as hard as it is for me to talk about it, it's harder for them to talk about it. And so if you go, what happened? And they have to keep telling the story over, it just, it gets harder and harder. And so pastorally, in times of loss, I just say, hey, why not let, let me talk to our congregation about that and help with that. So if you have their phone numbers, feel free to shoot them a text or whatever. But a text is good because it gives space. And please, you know, if they don't respond or whatever, it's not, it, it's not personal or anything. You just, you get overwhelmed. You get overwhelmed. And a lot of people will be checking on you and it gets hard or whatever. So silence, space. I'll have a couple more S's, but let me just move to just pull the Band-Aid off. For those of you who don't know, the family that lost their child is our beloved Andersons. Uh, they have a four-year-old daughter at home. Uh, they were expecting their son any day, nine months pregnant. Uh, we have watched our sister, Mrs. Anderson, around the church. Her belly growing. Last Sunday, I was in the entryway with her, and we were just talking about the baby boy. They were due any day, due any day. 
Last Sunday, we were in the entryway, and Mrs. Anderson was sharing with me uh, the, uh, the, the doctor's appointment that week and how great it was and how healthy the baby was and the heartbeat was strong and all this good stuff. Um, and then this week, they received the horrible news that the heartbeat wasn't there. Went in for a normal checkup. And the horrible thing about it is because of COVID, Mrs. Anderson went in by herself while her husband and daughter waited in the car. And all alone in that office, she was told the heartbeat's not there anymore. So that's your, that's your Tuesday morning. I came off of a Zoom staff call for the church and uh, long story short, walked outside. Our sister Katie was, was there. Mrs. Anderson was outside. She shared the horrible news. We talked, we cried, we prayed. We, maybe it's wrong, maybe it's wrong, maybe it's wrong, maybe it's wrong. Get another check. Maybe it's wrong, maybe it's wrong, maybe this is wrong. Felt like what the psalmist is describing as this tottering fence getting knocked over. You know, maybe this is wrong, maybe it's wrong. No, you know what? We're going, to pray. we're going to pray for a miracle. We're going to pray, Lord, bring the heartbeat back. And we're praying and we're trusting him and crying and trusting him. Uh, the Andersons live next door to me. Um, and I'm, I'm quite thankful for that in a time of loss. But you, I could just feel the cloud hanging over their house. I feel like it's cast over ours, over the whole block, over our whole church. This month was the one-year anniversary of Mrs. Anderson losing her father. Father passed last year. You have a daughter losing a son. Got an empty room, a crib. Daughter losing a father, the same month, so heavy. Think of Mr. Anderson, his dreams for her son, the joy of having a son, the horror of having that snatched, unannounced, unable to brace yourself. It's a sucker punch. So we respond with silence. In silence, we wait for God. We respond in giving them space. Don't ask questions they don't have answers to. Don't give herbal remedies or just give space. An autopsy is being performed and whatever, and you know maybe at some point we learn something, who knows, but you know, just give space, give silence. We'll, we'll work on planning some kind of a, a, a service. Can't really have a memorial. We don't, we don't have memories. We don't have pictures. We don't have birthday parties and, and what have you, but we'll have some kind of a funeral service for the family. But again, give space because Maybe it won't be big. Maybe it'll just be a few people. We, we don't know. We'll figure it out. Silence, space. Give sensitivity. Specifically, they have a four-year-old daughter. She knows. She knows. But be sensitive that, you know, after the church service is over, they're in the sanctuary. After the church service is over, and they go get their kid from kids' church or whatever, and she's around. Be sensitive when their daughter's around. You know, don't talk, don't talk about it in front of her. She's poor. It's hard to process. Um, people mean well. They'll talk about, you know, I'm sorry you lost your brother or whatever. You don't want to talk to a child like that. She starts thinking about being lost and doesn't understand what that means and, you know, are my parents going to lose me or whatever. She understands death. She lost her, her grandpa. She gets death. She understands being with Jesus. But, but let the parents, you know, let the parents deal with that. So silence, space, sensitivity, sacrifice. 
we need to serve them. Uh, when babies come, we often all rally and bring food and stuff like that. And, you know, and you, you rally around and, you know, and then a, a baby is lost. Of course, we're going to do the same. But give space, though. Give space, though. In particular, sending food, it's a little bit different in a time of loss. Uh, so so it, it, it's a lot easier to do an Uber or to do a Grubhub or something and send something over because when you're in a, a house of mourning, it's hard to have people over. So we'll get a meal train going, we'll do stuff or whatever, we'll post, we'll invite people to participate. We need the church to sacrifice all hands on deck. When one part of the body hurts, we're all hurting. This is horrible. So that's my alliteration, silence, space, sensitivity, sacrifice, and the final point in it is sovereignty, which is going to bring us back to the text, and I'm going to land the plane. Proverbs and the sovereign. Hopefully your Bibles are still are still open in front of you. I need to draw our, our pain uh, to the sovereign God. The Father wants us to see the Son in times like this. And we need to hear the command of the Scripture to trust God. Our brother and sister are, are here in the room. I, I, this, this, we're ministering to them, we're ministering to us, we're all, all in this as they trust God in the face of this. Hear the word of the Lord, church, Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, do not lean on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Trust is relying on someone else for your security. Trust is total commitment. Trust, as one Hebrew scholar notes here, is, it conveys the idea of lying helplessly face downwards. You're drowning. You need to trust someone to pull you out. The psalmist says, trust in the Lord and not your own understanding. It's not that understanding is bad. The book encourages human understanding. The book wants you to learn understanding, but human understanding alone is insufficient. Human understanding is only good when it is rooted in God's wisdom and, and has been disclosed by God by way of revelation. If you lean on your own understanding, you're going to struggle and you are going to fall and you are going to fail. This year I gave a sermon series on pain and suffering. You recall? We did weeks, weeks, how to respond to violence and pain and suffering. I give you a bunch of philosophical and apologetic arguments for those who say God is not real because of evil and pain and death and whatever. God's not real. I, I, I gave you ways of responding to that, but I need to say this, church, that in making sense of, of death and, and loss, there is a sense in which we cannot lean on those understandings. What we might say apologetically to outsiders in terms of a theosity, in terms of insiders in the family of God, it's not so tidy, and we need not make it rational Blessed is the house of mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. Some things we will never know. And if we did know, we wouldn't be trusting. I suspect if, I try, if, I, if, if God tried to even explain this to us, we would not understand it. Isaiah 55, we're told, My thoughts aren't your thoughts, God says. My ways aren't your ways. For as far as the heavens are from the earth, my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And in this case, we need to learn to lean, to lean on God. The passage says our paths will be straight when we do. The idea of a straight path in the book of Proverbs is contrasted with crooked paths and the way of, of, of sinful man as opposed to the way of those who have been called by God. So then, the final point on our outline, how do we practice what we have studied? How do we process this horrible news? Here's how we do it. It's in verse 1 of Psalm 62. My soul waits. Silence for God only. For him is my salvation. 
He is my only rock, my stronghold. I will not be shaken. We practice what we preach by trusting in God. We trust Him. Notice the description here. Greatly shaken. The text doesn't say that you won't experience shaking. It says that it won't topple you. So trust in the Lord. We looked at two passages today intentionally. I took you to Psalm 62 where there's this great confidence. And I, I took you to Psalm 77 to contrast that, to show you that, hey, look, even, even if you're wrestling with God, he'll still bring you to the place of trust. Psalm 77 turned into Psalm 62 by the end of it. I think of Mark chapter 9, verse 24, and the man who cried out to Jesus, help my unbelief. We cry out to God to change our hearts, to draw us to trust him, to know his chesed. The second point of application is tears. Mourn with those who mourn. The Son of God wept. You know that. The Son of God wept. When a family member close to him died, we read inside of Scripture that he wept. Thinking about Psalms, we, we studied these two, Psalm 62 and Psalm 77. Think about Psalm 22, which our Lord quoted when he was dying. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's quoted by Jesus, Psalm 22, on the cross of Calvary as he suffered in the flesh and bled out for his people. Suffice it to say, raw feelings of being forsaken in Psalm 22 or being rejected in Psalm 77, those are in Scripture, and it's okay to process with God that way. Both the dependence of Psalm 62 and the despair of Psalm 22 or Psalm 77, those are in Scripture for you. Pour your heart out to God. Cry and weep, church. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we're told that in our grieving, we don't grieve as the rest of the world who has no hope. So if you're feeling forsaken, if you're going through dark nights, especially for our beloved Anderson, you, you know it's in Scripture. It's there for you. And God gives you grace to weep and to weep with hope. And when Jesus cited Psalm 22, he was pointing the people to hope, to prophecy, to the one who was forsaken for us. Psalm 22 talks about the one who was pierced for us, the one who was surrounded by his enemies. Speaking of being pierced and surrounded by enemies, we always respond to the word in coming to the table that the Lord has prepared in the presence of the enemy of sin and death. And we come to the table in response to hearing God's word this morning. We come to, to, to offer ourselves, which is the final point on the outline, trust, tears, and totality. Christ gave everything for us his life he died for us and he calls us to respond to him today we have heard horrible horrible news of a son who died but we have the good news of another son who died who conquered the grave and in that good news we have hope of things yet to come psalm 62 verse 8 Trust in him, O people. Trust in him, Delray Church. In all our ways, let us acknowledge him. And as we come to the table, let us acknowledge him. Let me close with this. In the face of suffering, God is bigger and better and closer than we can ever imagine. Trust him. As sinners who've rebelled against him, we don't presume, we don't shake our fist at him in the face of pain and suffering or even death. In Jesus, we have a remedy for it all and more. We have a relationship with God. We have a place in his family. We have the hope of heaven for believers. And yes, even babies who die in the hands of his hesed, a loving God who rescues his own. As, as believers, we have no fear of death nor hell. 
We have the hope of reconciliation. The day will come when the beloved Andersons, with their son and with the dead in Christ, we will rise and we will be clothed in him. And we wait for that day. And he'll carry us through until that day. Church, let's come to the table today and be reminded of the one broken for us. Let's sing and and let's close with a time of, of prayer. Let me pray now over the word that has been shared and the heaviness that is upon us. Lord, we come. And like the psalmist who could sing songs in the face of death, we come now to sing to you. You are our refuge. You are our rock. Lead us to the place that is higher than I. We pray for Mrs. and Mrs. Anderson. We pray for their sweet and precious daughter as they process the loss of a son. God, I thought this would be the Sunday that there would be a flower on the stage and a PowerPoint. We we would be praying prayers of thanksgiving. And Lord, we're... We're still praying prayers of thanksgiving. We're thankful that you defeated the grave. And so death doesn't have the final say. We're thankful that you are near to us. Draw us near to you, we pray. As we come to the table and we're reminded with these pictures, bread and blood, we're reminded of death and the sting of death and mourning and loss and tragedy. But we come to the table, Lord, with that heaviness, seeking you to celebrate you who has victory over the grave. Minister to us as we partake in this sacred table. Minister to us as we join with the ancients in song and the angels in song. Lead us, guide us, carry us to a place of refuge. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.